Welcome to Oxford Plus, the podcast series that takes you deep into the myths and truths of the Oxford investing landscape. I'm your host, Susanna Diaga, and I've spent over 15 years in UK asset management. My guest today is Mark Preston. Mark has a degree from Monash University in engineering, which he initially applied to Formula One. Having run multiple teams engineering departments, he subsequently moved into strategy and executive management. More recently, he's focused on Formula E, leading the DS Cheetah team, before founding Street Drone in 2016. Mark is currently CTO of Street Drone, a pre-seed company developing low-speed, hyper-local deliveries in ports, commercial settings, and local neighborhoods. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, looking forward to chatting in this uh, lovely setting here. Wonderful. I'm excited to get your perspective because so far, lots of the guests we've had have been focused on the university ecosystem, and you obviously come with a different perspective. It might be really helpful for those listening to hear a little bit more about your background and how you ended up founding Street Drone. Sure. So I'm from Australia, from a city called Geelong, which is actually the kind of the forward town in Australia. So I grew up around cars. After doing mechanical engineering, I joined GM in Australia, GM Holden, which is a part of the GM infrastructure, I suppose, around the world as an engineer. Then I moved over to a company called TWR, Holden Special Vehicles, so in project management and those kind of things. Then the guy who owned that, his name was Tom Walkinshaw, he bought a Formula One team in the UK. He's from Scotland, was from Scotland, he passed away. So I joined, came over to do F1 for two weeks or two years, and 25 years later, I'm still here doing all sorts of technology and, and, and motorsport and those kind of things. Worked at Arrows Grand Prix for about six years. Uh, then I went to McLaren F1 for a few years and then decided to do my MBA. And that's the connection sort of to the university when I came and did my EMBA yeah. at uh, Sire Business School. And during the MBA, I started a Formula One team with Honda. As one does. Oh, yes. It was good fun. So that was my kind of first, uh, let's call it, big startup while yeah. doing uh, connected to the to the university, but um, doing a bit of both. So we started the Formula One team, which was a pretty uh, crazy adventure in Oxfordshire. Sadly, uh, Honda pulled out of that and um, we uh, bought the assets and started another company, which is a composites company called Formtech Composites, which is still operates down in Milton Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not so far away. And then I got involved in the next big thing, which was Formula Electric, which Alejandro Agag started way back in 2012, which now seems like a long time ago. I suppose in parallel, one of the connections there to the university was after my MBA, I wanted to see if I could help some other startups out mm. of the university. And they introduced me to two startups. One was Oxford Yesa Motors, which uh, sold recently, and I helped them to do the business planning and everything, which Mm -hmm. is how I got involved in electric motors and started to understand about what could be the future of automotive and transportation in the world. Uh, So that was my kind of big connection, I suppose, to the university by helping them to start up and and spin out. There was another one called T-Tech, which was Tidal Energy Turbines, but that was a bit more of a bigger project which we couldn't get off the ground because it's just such big engineering and I suppose UK is not quite so uh, used to doing what I would call public works projects nowadays. Yeah. But anyway, that was an interesting one as well. So I got involved in Formula Electric and along the way started to look at what else was going to happen in my favourite world of automotive, which turned out to be autonomous. So with a colleague of mine, Mike Potts, we started Street Drone to have a look at autonomous vehicles and support 
initially some of the startups that were also happening in the UK with vehicles. And that's kind of where we're up to now. Wonderful. Thank you. That was a really excellent whistle-stop tour of, a, of quite a long and detailed <laughs> career. I mean, I think it would be fair to say you've got a lot of experience and you very kindly touched on how it integrated with the university and more distinct from it. Something when we met the other day that really struck me, and, and it's my naivety, I'm sure, not other people's, but, you know, Oxford Plus is talking about the university and outside of it. And you actually articulated just on the scale of the motorsports cluster, uh, you know, kind of near Oxford. And I'm really interested, firstly, to hear a bit more about it, but also when the UK talks about trying to build clusters, I can't help thinking there's so much we could learn from the existing ones. And I'd love to get your perspective on on how it operates and what I suppose the distinct characteristics are that we should be trying to emulate. Yeah, I find it really interesting that the whole cluster here. So there's, of the F1 teams, really the, are the ones that, that drive the cluster. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to count how many there are at the moment. I come from the six or seven, depending on whether they've got satellite offices here yeah. as well. So you may not realize that some of them still have offices here, even if they're not uh, primarily based here. And that sort of spreads from the Silverstone being the racetrack yeah. and then down as far as obviously McLaren in, in London, but um, up as far as Mercedes high performance engines, at least that's one of the more famous ones at the in Northampton. Yeah. So there's about 40,000 people that work in the industry and it's massive. probably driven, the thing that I found is the most similar to Silicon Valley is I think there's what they call high labor mobility, meaning yep. if a project fails or stops, like we've had a few projects stop when a car company pulls out, it doesn't take long for all those people to get taken Rehide. up into the next yeah. project or expansion yep. or growth or something. And I think that's quite key because it means people aren't uh, afraid to lose their jobs, which sounds terrible, but it sort of shows that that, that mobility of people means yeah. that it shouldn't be a problem to shut something down. That's not great, but it does allow for things to ebb and flow and grow and well, change. Well, it's not a backwater, is it? So no. you're not <laughs> trying to hire somebody into somewhere where they've kind of backed into a cul-de-sac if it fails. Yes. And so I should imagine that attracting that top talent yep. when there's that optionality... It's is, just that much more appealing. Like, oh, oh, well, if it fails, at least I haven't moved my whole family somewhere. Exactly. And that's yeah. what you find a lot of people from all the countries around the world, including myself. Yeah, um, Lots of uh, Italians and French and Germans and everybody uh, that are in Spanish, et cetera, that all come and live in this region yeah. uh, in order to, to work in motorsports. And that huge supply chain is very high tech, very high end. We've had some startups or helped a few things out of Oxford where often Formula One will experiment way earlier than anybody else. So mm -hmm. universities are known for doing the low TRL levels, so the te technology readiness levels. Yeah. And F1 would often scoop those levels up really low down, so sort of three and four, and have a go at them or play and see whether those things are, are viable. Yeah. And if they're viable, perhaps help them scale up or at least go from sort of four to six and then use it. And then if it doesn't work, then pass it on or it then grows its own way because um, F1's helped to get it going. So it, it's great because it can afford higher priced products at the beginning, especially if they're higher performance. And so I don't know if we've used the opportunities well enough in the region to, it has been used, but I'm sure it could be used more in order to help uh, some companies spin out quicker. Interesting. Just coming back to the elements, what you've described is a really high functioning and one of the main clusters. And what we've described is one of the main benefits of that. So the talent cycling and obviously the funding of sort of things coming out of the university, early stage technology with a natural buyer. 
But if we want to create that in a maybe slightly different area, it sounds like potentially it's quite difficult because it almost relies upon a sort of critical mass in order to function, not maybe the latter part, but the talent element. So are there sort of, I suppose, areas that are maybe stand alongside Formula One that we could kind of naturally be cycling talent into them and so there's a natural place to sort of point to that's adjacent, I suppose. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, obviously doing my MBA of the um, competitiveness of nations, um, yeah. you know, and what, what you should be doing, what you're good at. Yeah, um, <coughs> makes sense. Like a kind of a joke that, you know, if you're going to buy surfboards, maybe you might buy an Australian surfboard, but if you're going to buy a, a car, I'm not so sure we should really have a big car industry in Australia. Um, yeah. If you want to buy mining equipment, maybe. Or, yeah, indeed. You know, so I think in some ways things should match what's, what's going on there. There's certainly a lot of government strategies which follow along some of the main themes in motorsports, things like uh, advanced materials. Yeah. So the machines to do the rapid prototyping and printing, perhaps, you know, that becomes a separate stream yeah. supported by the by the F1 teams who use them considerably now. So uh, high value engineering, um, rapid manufacturing of parts, experimenting with things, things on the kind of bleeding edge. So I think there are a lot of companies that can benefit from being close to the F1 teams and then can help those technologies spin out. I mean, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about synthetic fuels and other things, which F1 is, is pushing for the 2026 season. And so there are startups and there's obviously a lot of R&D going on in, mm. in chemistry departments and those kind of things at all the big universities. So again, there's ways in which those departments can link to some of the technology that's developing and then hopefully spin that over to F1 to kind of kickstart things and then maybe then find their way to, um, interestingly, the, the classic car industry in the UK, which is massive. So there's all these things that can then take that technology from the, let's say, beachhead market to the next market to the next market. So um, this is certainly a, a lot of optionality here. Really, really interesting. And you spoke about the fact that a lot of the companies might actually just have a satellite office. It might not be their headquarters that are here. In your experience of having worked in Formula One, could we be doing more to attract more headquarters here? You know, I had a slightly depressing kind of sitting in traffic moment on the weekend, not even during the week, thinking, gosh, if you were looking to set up a company or a headquarters, this traffic issue in Oxford might might really put you <laughs> off. That's a bit prosaic. But in your experience, you know, should the government be doing more to try and attract headquarters here so that they then supplement clusters and supplement what's coming out of the university I think the biggest problem we've come across is Brexit again. Yeah. I wasn't, was I doing F1? Yeah, I was probably doing F1 back in the, the days when we probably, some of the trucks would have to drive across Europe through mm -hmm. uh, borders where you required this thing called a carnet, which is a piece of paper that you have to list every single thing. the car. <laughs> yeah, and you have to list every single thing in the, in the vehicle and you're supposed, in the truck, sorry, that's yeah. being delivered. Oh, sorry, it's delivering the cars. And nowadays you also have to put where the origin of every part is. And so you can imagine when a race team takes things from the UK to now back into Europe to go the racing, friction. the amount of paperwork and everything is just phenomenal again. So that's a big barrier. We're having, we're actually looking ourselves at having a um, an office in Europe so that we can get around some of the having to import export. So we might buy something from 
Europe, do something to it and then send it back. So now we're looking at uh, can we do – because we've got some things going on in Rotterdam at Street Drive. Yeah, yeah. So it would be easier just to send that to Rotterdam and do the work in Rotterdam than bring those parts over to the UK, do the work here and take it back. So there's all of that practicality and, and I, so I haven't experienced it recently in um, in motorsports but I know what we're having to do at Street Drone. Uh, so therefore that is certainly very painful. Some of these big uh, areas like Milton Park and what MEPC is doing up at Silverstone, growing the technology centres. We did look at uh, one point when we were looking to where to put an office with some of the tax breaks on some of the areas which are seen as free, is it free zones? Mm. Or there's yeah. areas where you can have business rate um, yeah. relief for a while to encourage someone to you know set up something here. A lot to do, of course, education and, and then the problem with sponsorship sponsoring people, actually getting enough people to work for you and then make it easy for us to bring people into the country. So because we're in the high-end areas, roboticists and all of that, you know, ourselves and other startups are taking a lot of those people. So it's um, we do have a lot of um, staff coming from overseas and so the sponsorship side of things is is just slow and difficult mm-hmm. compared to when before Brexit. So there's lots of barriers that have been put in place in the last number of years that slow us down and mean that we're having to do different things in different countries in order to get around them. Yeah, slightly depressing to hear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the educational kind of or, or the high value visas thing I've heard before from other people and it does seem to me that it's, it's something that's been a bit of a noise on from the government but not that much action perhaps just yet and yeah, that um, fight for talent and bringing them in. and we're, we're certainly having to, you know, have people to help us get all of those visas sorted out and um, you know, it takes a few months to get somebody overseas. You can't react as quickly as you can, let's say, if the person is currently at university and, and would like to keep working. There are some visas that allow that to happen reasonably quickly, but you also need to check, is that person going to be allowed to stay yeah. after that degree that they're doing that um, allows them to, to work here for a little while? Yeah. It's an interesting point. I think somebody told me the total number of global PhDs and, and it wasn't large. I mean, I, I suppose it's a really high level of education, sh- so it shouldn't be that surprising. But I think it was like 10,000 a year. Yeah. And when you think of that as a sort of how do we grab them? How do yes. we make sure that it's really easy and appealing for them to come here? Yes. I think I even heard that, and I might get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Qatar that was basically saying, if you move to Qatar with a PhD, we'll pay you £75,000 a year just to sit while you work out what you might do. Oh, okay. Just what you might do yeah, here so yeah. that the talent will actually arrive. Yes. Brexit friction. I thought I didn't realise you could call it Brexit fiction. Friction, sorry, that's a fiction maybe, uh, but friction, yes. Is, uh, <laughs> I think it was the fiction that the friction would go, wasn't yes. it? That's the, that's the good joke. Yes. Uh, so we, we've obviously spoken about your experience of the cluster, but you have had some experience of the university too. If you'd be happy to share, I think it's quite interesting. So when I started looking at the tidal energy turbines with the guys from the civil engineering department, a novel new technology, um, looks like a big lawnmower on its side, like old-fashioned lawnmower, yeah, <laughs> barrel yeah. lawnmower. But the problem with those type of turbines is they're very big and you have to step towards the kind of risk. So in the end, you want to do something like the seven barrier, which yeah. goes right across that area and have huge natural energy turbine yeah. or places like the Orkney Islands in the in the north. And when you go and watch the power of the waves in the Orkney Islands, the problem is going from this sort of small 
demonstrated it's in the university's water tanks doing testing to this thing that would have to be 70 meters long at each section you can imagine if something goes wrong and that gets washed away it's yeah. it's not like you're testing something on land where all right, if the wind energy turbine starts to creak and groan or something, you could probably go up and take a blade off. Mm. But in this, you put it in the water and then it could just get washed away. And then yep. that's the end of that. So the difficulty was looking at going from that right up to a full-scale operation. We worked out the cost of capital would have to be so low that the only way you could do it, we thought, was doing it as a national works project, yeah. as they used to call them okay. uh, in the old days. So uh, almost going back to the days of Brunel and everything in the 1890s when we did so much stuff in the UK, built so many big things. Um, I mean like high-speed railways or something. Yeah, something Just like as that. an example. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, when China's building how many thousand kilometres per day or something. Yeah. Um, so that you is know. a bit of a disappointment that we couldn't find a way to scale up such a risky project, but the fact that um, how much tidal energy we have around the UK. So it would require a different way of thinking, I think, to get such a big engineering project over the line. Obviously, we've got a lot of mm. wind turbines on and offshore, which is great, although that seems to be slowing slightly in the offshore ones. But yeah, the tidal energy turbines are another step in terms of their... Complexity, not really, but more risk as you build up to what you're trying to do. And in terms of when you had that realisation that the capital required was just going to be massive and that it would have to be a completely different type of investor, did you actually then go and try and talk to government at all? Or was it just something that you spoke to people and you said, well, there isn't the, the natural buyer of this? I did actually go down to Westminster and have a discussion. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I don't know which department it was. I can't remember now. They've all could changed been, anyway. <laughs> yeah, so it could be some, probably energy, I imagine. Yeah. Just to actually ask them, did they ever see a point at which t something like this could work? And did they agree with me that this is the type of different thought process would have to happen? And they basically agreed with me. We, we didn't find a solution. So I kind of said, okay, that's, mm. we're not going to go be able to go any further unless we could figure out a way of getting past that hurdle. Or there was another solution, which we at the time didn't come up with. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because in the project that I've been involved with for a while, and it's now finished, we we're talking to government quite a lot, trying to understand if more pension capital could be released, perhaps, you know, to create a, a larger natural UK, not completely altruistic, but, you know, at sufficiently large scale that there might be projects like you're describing, I think, that could fit within it. And it did oscillate a little bit in the two years we were engaging with them, as I think things got a little bit less positive. But... What was interesting was this sort of dialogue or rhetoric or kind of almost dogma, dare I say it, of that's a private sector problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we as the public sector don't think we should intervene. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it slightly belies the reality of other countries and what they're doing. Yeah. And again, with a slightly cynical hat on, state aid rules are viewed quite differently in okay. different places. And <laughs> yeah. the way that they are interpreted and enforced in some countries is a bit more sort of, well, that's fine. And that we maybe hurt our own chances by being the most literal. We have made use of the smallest size funding. So mm. the Entrepreneurs Investment Scheme, which um, works really wonderfully. Um, that's for the very low level. If you match that with what actually an F1 team's like, you would say that we're still better at doing the early stage and not so great at the, you know, 
uh, scaling up side of things. So getting it from Tierra level one up to eight, seven, eights, and then it seems to need a US or a, um, yeah. maybe Germany or, or France or something to scale something to a really large scale. So one end is quite good, but it doesn't seem to be able to get across yeah. that valley of death into the next big scale up. And I think you make a good point around SEIS and EIS is a, is a really great scheme. And actually, I think the Tony Blair Institute have put out some interesting stuff on this recently, just saying we need to effectively continue that virtuous continuum of, of capital by incentivizing people and even perhaps go as far as, and again, lots of countries do this, incentivizing UK pension funds to invest for tax breaks in UK-based yeah. technology yeah. so that that's a virtuous cycle. And it's not it's not a kind of giveaway it's in order to create that virtuous ecosystem within the UK that benefits the UK so it's not an expenditure on the kind of lack of tax take it should be seen as an investment by the government yeah the other problem is of course I come from coming from Australia where we've only got now 25 million people now from how big it is Um, compared to when you look at somewhere like the US obviously with the 300 plus and UK obviously here with was 80 now or something like that. Gosh. But yeah. then we've just, you know, made the Brexit friction higher in dealing with the other big market that's right next to us. And so I, I can also see why a lot of people go to the US because it's, I'm not going to say it's easier. It's just, you know, if you write instruction manual in English and you're selling in California, which is the fifth biggest market in the world, isn't it? Yeah. And then you can just take that to the states nearby without having to change all of, not too many of your rules as far as I understand. And therefore, it's easier to incrementally grow in that first stage. So you're going from a place as big as the UK and you're expanding out quite fast if you can to a market that's then four times as big or whatever the number is, whereas we're slowing that down over here. So it, it's sort of logical that with you can't scale up something as easily yeah. from the UK unless like I went back to that silly idea about surfboards. You can sell more surfboards in Australia. So what's that same area. We're pretty good at pharmaceuticals here, for example. Um, And obviously the university has a big um, uh, chemistry and pharmaceutical side of things. So there are areas that we seem to be able to scale up um, in some way. Not quite sure. I haven't sat down and tried to figure out why some things can scale and other things can't, but certainly high value, low volume products that seem to be okay. But then, yeah, there's others that that don't seem to be able to scale up from here. And it's interesting because coming back to where we started the conversation, thinking about the cluster, you know, potentially when you have that experience of how to scale something and the ambition, because that talent has been able to stay here, because there is an existing cluster, even though, as you say, the friction is greater now, because it's incumbent here, it's harder to move it perhaps than it is just to to, to stay put. But, you know, something that I hear a lot about is that scaling talent isn't here for many other industries. And so people's experience is that they need to go elsewhere because they literally don't have a playbook or because the playbook is to go into another larger, same language, domestic market, i.e. the US, that sort of automatic moving and listing in America and then the lack of recycled talent that has the experience of that journey. So it's all a complete kind of yeah, catch-22. I mean, um, they, they talk a lot about smartphones and saying that um, could you build a smartphone in America now? I'm not sure yeah. if you could because there's such depth to 
I think they call it the Creative Commons, don't they? The tiers down below the main OEM who makes the main product like the phone by not having the people who know how to do the glass or the other things, it makes it harder to then scale something up. So obviously that's why there's a lot of discussion in the US to bring back parts of the value chain. So you've got half a chance to scale some of those things. Obviously we've still got some car companies here in, yeah. in in the UK, but there is more of them in, in the US. Although, you know, you watch Tesla, it's still been difficult for them to scale up something even in the US. And they've almost gone bankrupt a few times, haven't they, on the way there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if it weren't for Elon, they probably wouldn't have got got there in the end. And there's a lot of others struggling to yeah. get to get there. So even, even in the US, it's hard to scale up in some areas because there's not enough of the, um, yeah, the supply chain that's got its expertise yeah. nearby, let's say. Um, so that's a curiosity. I'm not quite sure what you do about that exactly to, uh, <laughs> because then you have to think about picking winners and, you know, what should we be scaling up in here and what shouldn't we be scaling up and what works best. And I, I mean, I know the government does a pretty good job at it in terms of there's a lot of things with Innovate UK and yep. the KTNs, the knowledge transfer networks, yep. working on which sectors that we should be looking at. So mm. high value manufacturing and, and those kind of things certainly do get a lot of help. There's a fair amount of research in in batteries and and all of those elements which we see in in F1, but then scaling it is the bit I'm not sure we the British fault didn't I can't remember where British fault's up to now. No, um, I don't was, think it's very good. Yes. <laughs> so, aren't they being courted by America? Wasn't that the last thing with probably, the uh, yeah. IRA, uh, yeah, yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act, suddenly yes. looking quite appealing to go <laughs> elsewhere? So one of those big scale ups that could have happened is also struggling. So. Yeah. Um, but that means you've got to have the natural volume to support, et cetera. So it's complicated, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, the, the message I'm hearing is that, you know, and, and one sees this, that we're very good at creating sort of, I think it was somebody said, it might have even been Kwasi Kartang, you know, that we create the nursery bed for, <laughs> for the rest of the world to then come and kind of cherry pick our best ideas and take them elsewhere and scale them. And obviously, it's not the worst place to be. We're still coming up with great ideas, but we're not then reaping the benefits at the other end of it because they've gone elsewhere, relocated, that talent has gone elsewhere and that entrepreneurial experience that we want recycled here is also not here. Taking a slightly different step, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about your experience of Street Drone and where you guys are up to and, and what the sort of at completely other end of the spectrum at the moment, what the opportunities and hurdles that you're seeing on a more day-to-day level are. Yeah, so um, with Street Drone, we've actually benefited from a lot of the government funding. So um, Innovate UK through CKEV and Zenzik, which are the the groups that look after the connected and autonomous vehicles. You know, they've been very supportive there. We've been running a project up at uh, Nissan in Sunderland, so the biggest manufacturing plant, I think, in the UK. And in fairness, the government have done a lot to keep Nissan here. Yes. I mean, you know, even as a relative layperson, I've seen that in the news flows. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. so that's true. Yes. Yeah. And so we've been um, running an autonomous truck and now scaling up to to four trucks up there um, as part of the next project, which is um, called VCAL. Funnily enough, that was actually sponsored by DCMS. Yeah. Um, so that was because they were looking at 5G. Yeah. And so the first truck was operating, they call it teleoperations. So being controlled over a 5G network, a private 5G network. So there was a lot of uh, research and work done there to successfully drive a truck around first teleoperated and as a second stage uh, autonomously or a combination of the two as we um, scale up. What's interesting there is that actually we've had our first, I'll call it export, because mm-hmm. we're 
now doing a similar project in Rotterdam. So from the export point of view, we've taken that knowledge and technology over to Rotterdam and currently running another truck over there as we scale up. It is still difficult, though, to raise this next finance. We've obviously been talking all around Europe and Mm -hmm. and the US, but it's quite hard and, and slow process, especially with the I suppose, macro environment as it is at the yeah, moment. it's um, not an easy fundraising environment. But what are the main, not objections, I'm trying to think, but what are the main kind of questions that you come up with that people can't satisfy themselves with? I think a lot to do with the technology risk still to be yeah. solved, which yeah. is uh, when we see things in the US with companies like Cruise having difficulty in San Francisco. Now we're trying to allay those fears by saying, look, we're running off highway, so meaning private roads, which yep. mean we have different rules. We're running at slow speed, so we're we're taking it sensibly and slowly, I suppose, is the difference. But the sort of scale of funding is different in the US. And so mm. there's a comparison to say, well, if Cruise is spending this much money in the US, why don't you need that much money? And we're saying, well, we're trying to minimize what we're trying to achieve yeah. in order to minimize the amount we need. Certainly, the governments are supporting the supply chain side of things. So also mitigating risk by having more of a trying to help create a cluster, again, yeah. actually, of yeah. uh, companies around the UK so that we're all cross-fertilizing in a way. So we shouldn't be all doing the same thing over and over. That's that's pointless in some ways. We're just sharing knowledge. Yeah, sharing or Creating maybe suppliers. Creating a, por- a natural portfolio yeah. that hedge the risk for all the investors. Because at the end of the day, when you look at F1, one of the risk minimizations coming here is that there's a supply chain that can support you. Yeah. And so when we started up at Formula One team in, in back in 2005, six. We knew that it's going to be way, well, almost impossible if we did it anywhere else in the world. But if we did it in Oxfordshire, it made it less than impossible. It made it just difficult, but that was fun. So so I think that's the, the same thing. Uh, this, the government and certainly look, working hard on regulation because yeah. obviously the basis of our law is different to Europe. So we can approach the um, legal framework slightly differently. Uh, to... An opportunity at last. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, Street Trend's been supporting um, the Law Commission and others to, uh, and BSI and others to work on the regulations, especially That's we're trying really to help frame um, the ones that for off highway for ourselves. Yep. Although we are also doing work on highway with some of our vehicles and some of the partners around the UK. So there's a lot going on, but there's a long way to go. And having a obviously a stronger in terms of um, the VCs, et cetera, mm-hmm. that are into this area. And the, so the government's doing a lot to support, but they can only go so, so far mm. um, until you go back And does to this it. fall into the remit of sort of the UK Infrastructure Bank or is it outside of it? I am not the expert on those ones, but yeah, yeah that'd be great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after. <laughs> certainly, um, there's a number of um, big startups in Japan and yeah. in Europe that have been funded by the and I would be, I may be wrong, but I believe ECB and other things. So yeah. yes, there is a possibility that that is something we haven't um, been able to unlock, whereas others have around mm. the world. Mm. Uh, say certainly one of our Japanese, um, don't know about competitors, but certainly someone in this industry has been supported by a, that type of fund. Yeah. And then, of course, we talk about the Chinese uh, side of things, which um, obviously get funded in a different way yeah. and have quite a lot of strong um, support behind them to compete around the world. So we are coming... Well, they're not playing on an electoral cycle, are they? No. (laughs) So we are doing some, uh, or we're proposing some solutions at RFPs where we know the competitors are Chinese. And so that'll be interesting to see how that would play out. Really interesting. Yeah. So they'll be supported, I'm sure, uh, in certain ways. Yeah. And so we'll see if we can be... it comes back to this thing of a sort of, it's not a level playing field. Yes. (laughs) And uh, 
yeah, sometimes by being the most law-abiding. And in some ways, it's the best thing about Britain is the common law is why people want to do business here. Yes, exactly. But when you hold yourself to higher account than everyone else, it does make business perhaps quite tricky. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Mark, thank you. This has been such an interesting and broad-ranging conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And particularly hearing the two experiences you've had from much larger kind of part of the motorsports cluster and then your experiences as an entrepreneur coming out of Oxford. Is there anything else that you particularly kind of wanted to add before we round out? Because I've really enjoyed this. No, I think it's uh, been a great conversation. Uh, You can tell from some of the approaches, I would love to figure out how to join the cluster of motorsports up better with the university and yeah. startup side of things. That's been a bit of a passion. Haven't seen it work as well as I'd like to, yeah. um, maybe over the last 20 years or so here. There feels like there's got to be a way of joining up this very unique now in on the TV everywhere of Drive to Survive and everything. Yeah. Um, sport that's just around the corner and, and uh, many of the people live in Oxford and around Oxford and in certainly Oxfordshire uh, as well. So that's one of those things where I'd love to join up all these bits of the puzzle that we've been discussing in a much more fluid way I suppose and reduce some of that friction of the the Brexit side of things would make it way easier for both uh, the motorsport cluster and also the startup. Yeah both the large and the small. Yes if we can find ways of uh, joining those things up. No and listen I think that's a very worthy and probably a good note a positive note to end on is that there's more opportunity and obviously the goal of this podcast is partly to have these conversations in a public domain so that anyone that might be able to add thoughts or practical solutions can basically get in touch. So we would encourage that to anyone listening. Sounds good. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to this episode of Oxford Plus, presented by me, Susanna Diaga. If you want to stay up to date with all things Oxford Plus, please visit our website, oxfordplus.co.uk, and sign up to our newsletter so you never miss an update. Oxford Plus was made in partnership with Mish Kondorea and is produced and edited by Story94.